Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Ross and B. Maloof. We're at NoClo Radio, uh, Forest Grove, Oregon. It's August 24th, 2020. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Uh, first question for both of you, uh, why wine? You can take yeah. that one away, Ross. Me? Yeah, you, you start that one. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> wow, <laughs> the hard ones right away. <laughs> um, I guess, uh, you know, B and I have uh, maybe two kind of trajectories on different ends of the coin, if you will. B um, has a history that's very much rooted in hard science. Um, and um, I'm sure she could tell you a little bit more about her career in um, aerospace materials engineering. Um, whereas uh, I came from um, hospitality. I, I worked in, in uh, the restaurant industry my entire life since I was 15. Started working at a country club. And uh, it's very, like, I guess Caddyshack-esque <laughs> to start. Uh, you know, work as, like, uh, somebody who basically, like, you know, parked golf carts and uh, worked in banquets at a country club. And then um, I moved to Philadelphia and um, I was a part-time student for quite a long time at Temple University. <laughs> and uh, uh, along the way, I, I just worked through uh, in restaurants the whole time. And that kind of had its own um, arc and uh, as time went on, I, I kind of um, gravitated more and more towards beverage as a whole. I, I worked um, in, in some cocktail bars um, and, and started um, running beverage programs and, and that eventually just kind of led towards really focusing on wine. And um, so I was doing that for, for quite some time and, and so I was kind of already pretty, pretty deep into um, into wine on the hospitality side of things and um yeah and then you know uh we met and and started dating and um, well before yeah. we even started dating one of the first things i actually ever said to ross the night we met was i don't like white wine and you'll find later that we primarily make white wine i was very yeah <laughs> very misguided at the time um <laughs> No, it was, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably something embarrassing, but no, it's okay. I don't think so at all. <laughs> I've come so far from that night. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, so I had actually, um, um, some of our really close friends from Philadelphia and, um, uh, one of whom was my childhood friend, um, they had moved across the country out to Portland. Um, they moved in maybe like 2013 and uh, we had been, you know, itching to come visit them. And so in 2014 came out just to nothing to do with wine, just to come and see friends in Portland. And um, I had uh, reached out to one of the distributors that I was working closely with as a buyer in Philadelphia and said like, hey, like you know, going to Portland, um, are there any, you know, producers kind of in your umbrella that, you know, would be open to um, having a visit, you know, 
getting something more intimate than you know rolling around to tasting rooms and um, we ended up getting connected um, with uh, Brienne Day and then uh, in that you know met like a whole group of who are now very close friends and um, so you know we met Brienne we met um, Jim and Jenny who we share this place with um, from Fossil and Fawn um, Corey and uh, the kind of the whole crew that were uh, making wine at the the beginning uh, years of uh, day camp's existence. Yeah. So um, we ended up uh, coming back a little more each year for the first couple of years, and in uh, lived in a tent behind the winery. <laughs> and Which uh, sounds a lot more romantic than it is after a couple days. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we were kind of just. Um, we were, I mean, we were still paying rent back in, in Philadelphia. B had her, she was working full time for Boeing at the time. And, uh, yeah, so I guess my, tra my trajectory was very different getting yeah, into wine than Ross. Um, sure. obviously he kind of had the hospitality side and the beverage side of things. Um, so like I said, when I first met him at the restaurant that he was managing, I foolishly told him I did not like white wine and That's true. He not so foolishly decided that he was going to change my mind. Um, I don't even remember what you brought me. It was an orange wine. Um, anyways, it was, it was pretty delicious. awesome. Actually, um, uh, that's, how, that's how we met was uh, B came into uh, this is probably like maybe taboo to talk about. It's like a fireable <laughs> offense. <laughs> uh, B, uh, B came in uh, with her, her dad and uh, stepmom to dine at the restaurant that I was managing and um, we all kind of hit it off and <laughs> her stepmom ended up initiating <laughs> in short <laughs> she takes full credit uh, us getting together yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah so I think that night I started opening up and being like okay you know these are these are some really quality wines and I, I really enjoy them um, and then as Ross and my relationship grew he was in the process of studying for his SOM exam and he would have me test, uh, you know, blind taste with him. And um, he just really started telling me about all of the history and the backgrounds and different AOCs and what you, you know, what goes into this type style of wine and what goes into this style of wine. And the scientist in me was just like, oh wow, like this is way cool. Um, and so I started reading more about it um, and obviously expanding my palate to be way less focused on Cabernet and Merlot, you know? Um, <laughs> it's very embarrassing, this, this whole part of it. I don't think so. Um, but yeah, so Ross had come out here the first time and worked, um, just kind of helped around for two weeks, um, one harvest at day camp, and I remember picking him up from the airport and just listening to how he was explaining everything. I was like, okay, this is going to be a thing in our lives now, so I should probably do um, the only reasonable thing and save up all of my vacation and go out <laughs> with him the next year. So I took six weeks of vacation the next year, and that was when we came and lived in a tent um, the whole time and explored Oregon, and that's, you know, I, I fell in love not just with wine, but with Oregon. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's so beautiful here. Um, I love the East Coast, but there is just, the pace of life here, just being able to get into nature, being so close to the shore or the mountains or, you know, the hiking, it's, it was just something that really, I think, called to both of us. We live um, here now, so they call it the coast, not the shore. 
okay. We're not in Jersey anymore. Like I said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, strike that. <laughs> um, you totally gave yourself away. I we'll know. Go to the coast. Oh, shucks. <laughs> coast, coast, coast. Um, yeah, but so I fell in love with wine from a very different perspective um, than Ross. Ross, I think, is very much rooted in the sensory side of things. And feel free to describe yourself if you'd like. But I fell in love really with um, the science behind it and really like what is going on at, you know, with all of these microorganisms and why, you know, does this temperature cause this to do this? And, um, and then I'm a materials process engineer by trade. So processing techniques is kind of just like ingrained within me and it really you know gets my pistons firing so that was just something in wine that I really fell in love with so we had come back um, after that harvest and that was 2015 14 Six, uh, well for w together yeah um, so we, 16 16 so 16 we did uh, was when you came out for six weeks yeah we were in the tent um, basically until like Thanksgiving yeah. um, and then I mean I had been there since like the summer so <laughs> and then uh, came out longer we ended up I mean while we were here in 16 we I think made the decision like let's yeah. like let's lean in and and find a way and, and make a move yeah. and so we went back to Philadelphia that winter and um, pretty much just tied up loose ends and packed up our stuff sold most of our stuff yeah Pack, then, uh, we eloped also at that time, you know, yeah. just to really make it official. Mm -hmm. um, we actually eloped in the living room of the distributor who yeah. first connected Ross That's with true. Brienne Day. So it's this yeah. beautiful circle. And the mayor, <laughs> the mayor of Philadelphia at the time yeah. ma uh, married us. He married us. <laughs> he married us. And then promptly, Which is a whole different story. <laughs> and then after hanging out and being amazing, um, he had to rush out to debate Rick Santorum on CNN. And That's we true. were just yeah. like... How did it was this a perfect happen? day. It was, it was great. <laughs> it was wonderful. It was so amazing. Um, um, but yeah, so we, um, I put in my notice at my job and we, Ross quit his position. He had quit actually right before um, coming out. Yeah. And so we just packed our two duffel bags, our two dogs, a cooler, and we set off. We had no timeline. Yeah. Um, we had no place to live once we got here. We had a new car <laughs> so though. We did. Which was nice. Because <laughs> well, the options leading up to our move <laughs> were um, <laughs> pretty laughable. We so we had um, we had two cars. B drove um, a Honda um, Civic like, coupe. coupe. So probably not ideal for two humans and two dogs to drive across the country. And um, and I had a like a, a 1995 Ford Bronco. He had the O.J. Simpson car. <laughs> yes. And, um, Tell me it was white. And it, it was. It was, yeah. It was the car. It was the car, yeah. <laughs> and so on one hand, we were like, uh, way too cramped. And on the other hand, we were like, is this truck going to make it? it and not. also gas. So we ended up selling both of our cars and, and got a little Honda HRV and then uh, we set out and drove through the south and we took our sweet time. Um, we were on the road for a Over while. a month. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we got to see a lot of like uh, the southern states that I had never personally spent time in. Yeah, and it was a really cool trip. And we got here in uh, the spring of early spring of 17, which is kind of crazy because that was going on our third vintage of wine as far as production for Maloof wines. Um, and yet we were kind of day one in in being residents of Oregon. So 
Um, so yeah, so 2020 will be our fifth vintage. Yeah. 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, uh, sixth, sixth vintage. Sixth vintage. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, so it'll, yeah, so this will be our sixth vintage, yet um, we you know we've only lived here for a few years. Yeah, So that goes for a while. Yeah. So before we move on, I have a couple questions about sort of pre-wine. Uh, B, especially with you, I'm curious about uh, sort of how you got into your profession before, how you got into uh, material science engineering, sure. and about leaving that for wine, and if there was any trepidation on your part. Um, yeah, so how I, I mean, how I got into it, I've always been very science-brained, if you will. <laughs> what is that, right, right-brained? I think left-brained is the artsy side, and I've always this been... Sounds right. Whatever. Um, but I yeah, I was, a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I was always good at math and chemistry in high school. And I remember, um, it's actually, it's very poignant. I was driving home with my dad one day. I was a junior in high school and I was like, I think I'm going to be a chemist. And he was like, you should look into engineering. And I was like, okay, great. Chemical engineering. And that's what I had in my head. Um, just because I looked up to my, I still look up to my dad. He's a great person. Um, and he was just like, you know, engineering is, is probably more like what you're thinking of, of what you want to do than be in a lab all day. And I was like, Oh, okay. Okay. So I, uh, went to school, um, for chemical engineering, um, and very promptly decided that, Oh no, this is not, this is <laughs> not what I want to do with my life. Um, much respect to them, but it's all gas and flow. And I was like, I do not want to work for Exxon. Um, so I uh, worked with a professor of mine who was like, I think, I think what you really thought you were getting into is this. And I had never even heard of material science engineering. Um, and so then I took a class, decided I fell in love with it. Um, it was so much fun. It was exactly what I imagined I was going to be doing as a chemical engineer um, and went from there. And then aerospace kind of just fell into my lap. Um, I paid my way through college and I foolishly thought that going to a private school was the best thing to do. Um, so I was very good at the people knowing. at Carnegie Mellon aren't going to see this, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe they should. I'll take some, some rebates from... <laughs> we won't tag them on the post. Okay, good. <laughs> yes, I went to Carnegie Mellon and uh, oh, um, I was very good at knowing where all the free food on campus was because what a better way to save money than not having to pay for that. Um, so I actually, I ended up going to some information session with Boeing. I sat in the back of the class because it wasn't even for engineering, it was for IT. And I was like, I want this sandwich and I'm going to sit back here and eat it. And I ended up talking because I was also just... Duh, 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 duh. So they leveraged um, sandwiches like they were timeshares? Oh yeah, they sure did. They were like, come, listen to this presentation, we'll give you free food. They knew the way to our hearts. They knew, they knew how to, how to uh, reel us in. Um, but yeah, so I sat in the back of this room, eating this hoagie, another East Coast term, hoagie. Yeah, sub sub sandwich. Sub yeah. sandwich. God, I gotta, I gotta get into the. Yeah, so submarine. <laughs> submarine. <laughs> and I was talking to this gentleman next to me for the entire time. Like the poor guy, probably. I thought was probably like, wow, like shut up, like listen to this person talking. And I was just talking to him about my research and what I was interested in and nanotechnology. Um, and he was like, oh, oh it's, yeah, that's really, that's really fascinating. Um, well, what are you doing tomorrow? I was like, what? Like, what do you mean, what am I doing? He's like, yeah, well, I'd love to interview you. He was a chief technology engineer at Boeing. And that just kind of snowballed. And I ended up getting a job at Boeing, and that's how I got into aerospace. Um, and I worked at Boeing for eight, eight years um, before deciding that as much as I learned there and as exciting as it was, I will not made to 
that urban corporate job, right? I was not made to sit in, you know, a cubicle all day and um, just wasn't what really called to me. So it was a great experience. Um, you know, I took a, a lot from there, but it was also very easy for me to come back and be like, all right, here's my one month notice. <laughs> I'm gonna go make wine now. It was a shock to my management, but <laughs> um, they were all really supportive. They were pretty great people. Yeah. Um, but with that said, I still also have a full-time job in aerospace materials engineering now. Um, but now I work for um, a really amazing um, European company called Solve, um, and I work from home, and they're very supportive of as long as I'm getting my stuff done. <laughs> You know, I can work from the winery, I can work from my living room, um, and it still kind of keeps my toes in the, the technical sure. waters, so. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, so. Yeah, we're, then, um, we, we're continuing to just go down the path of, uh, um, like, operating in, in the crazy no man's land of us both working full-time outside yeah. of our wine, yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and continuing to increase production. And um, yeah, so we're just kind of waiting until, you know, I don't know. Until the time <laughs> is right. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> um, the goal is for both of us to eventually step back and do this full time. So once we yeah. hit that mark, sure. yeah. um, we don't know who will be the first full time person. I don't we know, keep yeah. going back and forth. Yeah. Stay tuned to find out. <laughs> we'll place our wagers. Yeah. So Ross, tell me about, uh, from your background, I'm curious about, you mentioned kind of restaurants into beverage, into wine, and mm -hmm. then kind of full into wine. Tell me about what it was about wine that appealed to you and made you kind of hone your focus in on that. And then tell me about sort of learning wine from that perspective, from the kind of some restaurant perspective uh, first, and what, what intrigued you as you kind of grew your knowledge. Sure, yeah. Um, uh, I guess, well, I, so maybe at like the root of it before even like necessarily specifically wine, um, I very much love just hospitality at its core. Um, I, I really like, um, you know, working on a restaurant floor and, and getting to take care of people and um, show, show them cool things and share excitement about, you know, different food and uh, flavors and pairing those flavors with different, you know, cocktails or wines or spirits, whatever. And um, yeah, and so that, that, you know, that was a huge part of my life. And I think, um, you know, when I kind of slowly started getting more responsibility and, and uh, taking over in, in, you know, the wine side of things for um, some of the places I was working with, um, I started kind of getting glimpses of, of really what was behind the wine industry and that's just people. And, and uh, I, there's, there, I think there's a lot of crossover in just like the kind of hospitality mindset between the production side of wine and, you know, the end user that sits at a restaurant. And that's that there's, there's a lot of really hospitable people in the wine industry. So I, you know, I got to start meeting producers and um, I did a little bit of traveling um, and um, I met really cool people and I met really uh, caring, you know, um, passionate people um, who were, you know, uh, in my mind doing something that was just really um, 
like inspiring and uh, it seemed like people took you know so much pride in the work that they were doing and I think that there was like the that maybe transition and for me wanting to go to actual production was the kind of like um, what I maybe was missing was like the tangible of like having like something you know something physical to 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 have and to say you know like we did this like we made this you know it's yeah. like it's ours you know like to be able to like publish something like that um whereas that that's not necessarily something you get um just f you know from i shouldn't say the word just but that's not something that you necessarily get from uh you know uh serving people you know or, or taking care of people in a restaurant um but it's funny because i feel like now thinking about like that dynamic and that um situation of you know people sitting down for a meal I can't really actually think of like a more intimate way of being involved in their meal than to be completely like behind stage and just having potentially a you know a bottle of our wine being at a dinner table like somewhere you know is pretty pretty cool yeah yeah so as you kind of came to kind of see production as something you wanted to do tell me about learning the process and going from kind of a, a psalm knowledge to a winery knowledge yeah um i think i had a lot of energy and a lot of ideas and a lot of misconceptions <laughs> uh um and i think that it was stuff that you know we we kind of learned together along the way um a lot of it i mean what's really cool about um uh wine production I think in general is that so much of what you learn can really only be learned by doing it or by seeing it and it's it's yeah. this communal knowledge you know whereas the um and, and you know maybe that is is like the real big for us testament to being able to have had the opportunity to make wine in a in such a diverse shared space is that in a lot of ways I feel like when we were you know starting to make wine we were not only we weren't learning one way to do something you know we were we were learning six yeah we were you know, learning from and i don't want to call them mistakes but yeah you know or, mistakes from our colleagues exactly. mistakes we would make you know we would all come together and talk and say you know have you seen this before like how have you handled this what you know what do you do this and yeah. it was kind of this like super condensed learning experience where if we had you know just been somewhere by our, ourselves we would yeah. have that one harvest you know whereas and, you or know, taking a job for a single winery exactly. that only made their wines you know which is great because kind of back to the the main even point is that i i, I mean what we've found is that there's there's at almost every like decision making process at almost every like step of the way there are so many different you know like decisions that you could make or you know uh outcomes and at the end of the day, they're kind of in a way there are no wrong answers. You know what I mean? If you're doing what you think is best for your wine and what you've found to be best for your wine, then what are you doing wrong? You know, and there like there's no one way to like end up with the wine that you want to make, I guess. Or yeah, um, or that's not going to be the same as, you know, a colleague. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but 
I don't know what the original question was. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting though, because I hear you explaining this and I can see that this is absolutely your side of the winery is you, there's no wrong way to necessarily get to your final product as long as you're doing what you think is best. And you are very yeah. experiential. He's like, I know that we did this and it did this. And that's where I'm usually like, why? Yeah. Because I want to know, because it's not necessarily A plus B equals C, right? Sometimes it's this is what happened in the winery and then we got here and I like to understand how because then if, you know, our 2018 Gewürztraminer it was infinitely better than 2017 and we didn't change, you know, X, Y, and Z, like why? What did we do or what happened, you know, so we yeah. can help maybe mimic that in the future because we like this aspect of it. I'm borderline like superstitious. Yeah, Ross, is, <laughs> Ross believes in magic. The last time I did this, I circled the barrel three times. <laughs> so I'm gonna do that. And we're gonna wear the same shirt. We had uh, Alice Cooper playing on the radio and... Yeah. Recreate the whole scene. <laughs> um, I'm sorry though, what was, the, what was your, your last question? Because I, I've definitely missed answering specifically what Basically it was. Basically just about learning production, just about, like you said, we're talking about going from like kind of a, a Psalms knowledge Got to, it. Like a, to like a winery yeah. knowledge. I was just sort of curious about the experience and yeah. about uh, how you went about learning how to make wine. Gotcha, yeah. And I, I think actually a lot of it does cross into B's realm too. We actually, um, uh, on like the kind of textbook side of things, we um, did some like internet sleuthing <laughs> and we uh, had like uh i think we just went to found some um like pdfs of like um syllabi from uc yeah. davis programs oh yeah and so we would just like you know because you can't get onto like actual like program websites and you know whatever but you know like professors would put up like their syllabi on on you know somewhere <laughs> and you like find this pdf and then you just scroll to the bottom and there's a reading list on it and you're like great <laughs> so get those textbooks you know and yeah. so you know, we, we kind of, we bought a bunch of winemaking textbooks and, and did a lot of, you know, kind of hard hitting the books like that and in a way, you know, when try to rebuild. Yeah. Outside <laughs> what, of yeah. harvest, when we're not actually yeah. in the midst of doing, yeah. you know, we've really been supplementing, yeah. kind of teaching ourselves, you know, as much as we can. For sure, yeah. And I think a, a lot of it, um, in, in a lot of ways, I think that leading up to the transition into production, knowing that um, personally that I had wanted to eventually get to production, not really knowing how soon it would be. I think a lot of, I think that shaped a lot of the ways that I was talking to producers, you know, um, when they'd come to the restaurant and, you know, and, and show their wines, or if I got to go on a producer trip and, you know, to a region and, and talk to people, I think a lot of, um, the dialogue from my end was was kind of more pointed towards decision making and production and why you know why people were doing things the way they were doing them rather than just focusing kind of on like the end result which yeah. i think a lot of like uh you know you had mentioned the the kind of uh you know the court you know uh the court of some kind of thing you know where it's it's a lot of focus on you know picking apart wine from the end results and, and working backwards. Um, yeah. yeah. The journey is more important than... <laughs> you mentioned uh, obviously working at day camp and some of the advantages to being there. I'm curious about it as a, as, a, as a first space for you. Were there 
extra challenges as well as advantages and, and, and what were you pleased that was the first place you chose to make wine? I mean, it was certainly the place for us to start. Um, oh, yeah. You know, uh, a co-op like that, like we said, you know, we learned a lot fa faster than we would have otherwise because we had all of these colleagues around us. Um, you know, we moved out here with nothing and no safety net. So we, it's not like we could go and say, okay, we're gonna take in 70 tons of grapes this year and make yeah. wine. You know, we had to start small. And when you're, when you're doing that, you know, you might not have the means to go buy, you know, a two ton Euro press. Um, so how do you kind of balance that? Let's get started and how can we grow without necessarily having this huge backing behind you um, to just go and build a winery? Um, and people do that different ways. There are certain, certainly I know people who will start in their basement and use a basket press and, and that's amazing, yeah. um, but that just wasn't um, our path. So I think that really, that allowed us to start small. We had a plan that was like, we were gonna do this and somehow we did this with the amount of wine that we made every, <laughs> every single year. It was this like exponential increase, but that's okay, it brought yeah. us here. Um, but yeah, so I, I mean, definitely, I don't know how we would have done it yeah, else, you know, sure. otherwise. Um, as far as challenges it, go, I mean, there's, I think there's inherent challenges to, I mean, harvest, it's the, har <laughs> the harvest season itself is, is high stress. Yeah, you know, it's a stressful time and it's a, it's a lot of work um, really condensed into a very short period of time. And to take that and then put seven layers of, you know, people doing the exact same things at the exact same time. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. So there's, I think any uh, challenges that you, you know, kind of mentioned are inherent to like, you know, the downside of, of making wine in a place where seven other people are making wine is that everybody needs to do the same thing at the same time. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be a lot of long days for sure. Um, yeah. And I think that, um, yeah, in a, in a way, like any other experience, it shaped kind of what we were looking for when we were ready to yeah. find our own place. And we certainly knew that, uh, making wine next to Jim and Jenny for two years at the beginning of that was... We could do it. Yeah, it was a really great experience. They're um, two of our closest friends and... Uh, We're you know. all really good at communicating with each other, which it's I true. think you find out very quickly during harvest amongst other people if you're good or not, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. 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 So it was... We do all of our traveling with Jim and Jenny. We do. Um, as far as... Um, we don't necessarily like advertise ourselves as like a... <laughs> Uh, a package deal to <laughs> distributors, but but we like having the same distributors in different <laughs> states so that when we do visits, we can just, here come the four of us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned that you had started the label before coming out here full time. I'm curious, um, with the actual kind of logistics of starting a label, tell me about sort of initial plans, uh, obviously naming, labeling, uh, finding grapes, deciding what you wanted to make and how you wanted to make it. Tell me about kind of the initial process for what Maloof Wines was going to be. That's a good question. Well, first and foremost, I think we wanted to make wine that we liked um, in general. And I mentioned earlier, we whites, but we primarily make white wine. Um, we like high acid white wine. And that's what we were like, all right, that's, let's, let's do that. And that way, if we're not successful, we'll have a lifetime supply of uh, libations in our basement, which we can 
<laughs> you know. Um, I think but, part of it, you know. Sorry, no. You, no, no, go for it. Um, yeah, so we knew that we knew we knew we wanted to to you know focus on making white wines and also just you know we were we were outsiders to Oregon uh, you know already and um, you know we we have a lot of uh, friends who make wines out of Pinot Noir here that we absolutely adore and you know and and we love Oregon Pinot Noir and you know I think there's a really good reason why um, Pinot Noir is you know, so heavily planted here. At the same time, I feel like, you know, just coming coming here from a pure outsider's, you know, role, I don't know that we had much to, to say in that dialogue of yeah. like Oregon Pinot Noir. So I feel like that, um, that, w that wasn't really our place to, to, you know, show up and be like, hey, here's another Oregon Pinot Noir for you. Yeah. Um, because from these East Coasters who yeah, say hoagie yeah. and yeah. the shore. And the shore. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I guess uh, you had in your question had mentioned like kind of growers. How did uh, how did everything kind of you know snowball and um, you know it it was very a lot of it at the very beginning was just kind of perchance and you know and uh, so here's the thing is like be, being outsiders and. Uh, to a place, you know, and, and coming in and then saying, you know, oh, we only want to make white wine. Well, uh, if you look at the percentages of, you know, grapes planted here, um, it, it, it really starts getting to small percentage points when you get outside of Pinot Gris, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the white fruit that was available to us when we were getting started was Gris. Mm -hmm. And um, we came to it from you know, a knowledge um, with, or we like to think a knowledge of like kind of wines from around the world. And, um, you know, we really adore Alsatian Pinot Gris and, and Pinot Gris from around the world. And um, not to say that there aren't, you know, magnificent Gris being produced here either. Um, but I do think that, you know, Gris for us had like, <clears throat> we had we had seen this kind of like, a, and, and this is something that we didn't, know at you know the time. at the at the set of of everything like we kind of learned this as we were going and that's that um in a lot of ways pinot gris has sort of suf suffered a little bit of an unfortunate fate here and um and it, it kind of is is being chipped away at from a lot of angles and um and that's a fate of um this this kind of unfortunate like downward spiral of uh, you have a lot of Pinot Gris that um, has a essentially like a cap at what you can sell a bottle of Pinot Gris at, right? So because you have uh, from the consumer and you work straight back from the consumer. A lot of consumers for Oregon Pinot Gris think that Oregon Pinot Gris is a very kind of no frills white wine. You know, that that's what it's for, you know, because they see a lot of Oregon Pinot Gris that hits the grocery store shelf for, you know, 14 to $18. So it kind of gets this connotation of, you know, like, oh, this is a, this is a very, you know, like uh, everyday, you know, casual wine. And so working backwards from that, you know, uh, winemakers, um, knowing that they can only demand this price for Pinot Gris, um, can only afford a certain amount for the fruit, which means if you're a grower, if you're a farmer here, 
um, you have a grape that is taking up space in your vineyard and that same space if it were planted to anything else chardonnay or pinot noir as a farmer you can charge you know two to three times the amount of money that you do for greed yeah. so what ha what happens and what's been happening over the years is that pinot gris has started to occupy less and less serious vineyard land. So a lot of Pinot Gris is getting maybe more concentrated to like the valley floor or, you know, to, you know, so you have, um, you know, there are undoubtedly, um, you know, Grand Cru level sites scattered around Oregon. And um, there's a lot of pressure for farmers in those sites to, you know, um, have them be profitable. So there's a lot of, you know, um, pressure to you know, graft chain, over, graft yeah. over. Yeah. You know, people pay a lot of money for Oregon Chardonnay right now, you know? And so if you can take your block of Pinot Gris and graft it to Chardonnay, it, you're going to be profitable all of a sudden. Whereas you can't necessarily do that with Pinot Gris in that, in that same, you know, vineyard space. So it's kind of like chipping away from all these angles, you know, and, uh, there are certainly many, many examples um, of really, really quality high-end Pinot Gris being made here. Um, I, I just think that there is this kind of like pressure on, on Pinot Gris that uh, it's hard, you know? So we um, fell in love with Pinot Gris really early because it was, it was really our first fruit contract. Was, um, it was the first, you know, piece of vineyard land that we were going to, to kind of uh take all the fruit from and uh and that's our uh um yeah that's the the site in dundee hills which was um thistle vineyard um which, which is part of i mean going back to earlier how it was all kind of chance happenstance yeah. you know that we got that ross was at a bar talking to a gentleman next to him who happened to be the farmer of this land yeah and that's how that snowballed and we're like, hey, yeah. we have pinot gris for you <laughs> we were like great great <laughs> um so uh yeah and uh this the site now is um uh under cody wright's ownership uh, from purple hands and it is their now estate um vineyard site for their new brand hocken lanai um so uh but b and i are continuing to uh take all of the pinot gris from the two blocks of pinot gris that are on the site um yeah so I think that in a way it just kind of snowballed into this, you know, we, we do focus on white wine production and we do a lot of single vineyard designations of white um, varieties. Um, but there's also this like kind of sub like focus on, on showing uh, what different sites have to say through Pinot Gris. Yeah. Um, and so we, we actually do, this year it'll be four, five. five. Oh my it gosh, yeah. Let's so in, 20, in 2019, we did four single vineyard Pinot Gris, and now this year it'll be five. Yeah. We... Um, yeah. Yeah. So I also should say that a lot of the kind of um, rambling I just did was very much shaped by um, a colleague and somebody who, it's kind of even weird to say the word colleague because it's somebody that we really admire and, and endlessly look up to. And, Hero. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, um, uh, Jason Lett um, from uh, the Irie Vineyards. Um, 
we've had a lot of these conversations about Pinot Gris specifically with him and um, we're given the opportunity this past year to uh, work with the Pinot Gris from the original vines planted um, by David Lett um, at the Irie Vineyards. So um, sometime next year we will be releasing a, a small amount of Pinot Gris um, and uh, are effectively the first winery other than the Irie Vineyards to produce um, Pinot Gris from those grapes. Talk um, about it, anxiety yeah. inducing. Yeah. The whole time, Jason's like, How, how's it going? And we're like, it's, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Don't worry. Like, <laughs> Don't even look at it. <laughs> we like, just like, we sing it to sleep yeah. every night. It's being well pampered. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I mean, and it's, that's insane. I mean, David Lett, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure I don't have to, you know, recant you, the story you for you. Have <laughs> you heard of David Lett? Once or twice. You heard of this guy? Once or twice. <laughs> uh, but you know, I mean, he, he took graftings, he took plant material from, you know, the UC Davis um, nursery program and brought them up to Oregon. And, and that was the first Pinot Gris. And that was actually the, the first commercially planted Pinot Gris in the United States was, was the Irie Vineyards doing that. Um, and, and that's that block in that vineyard, so. Yeah pretty insane. No pressure. Yeah. No. None. None whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that immediately puts you guys in an interesting space commercially. So tell me about commercial viability of single vineyard Pinot Gris in Oregon when you've just told us all the, sort of the reasons it doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> well, so aside, aside, up until the iRegree, which will be in a class of its own, um, you know, we, we've tried to make it still a, a marketable product in terms of price, right? We haven't wanted to go too high because we do want to get it introduced into the market and we do want to start, you know, wetting people's appetite for really quality Pinot Gris that don't necessarily take, you know, a back seat to Pinot Noirs. Mm -hmm. um, so, we also just have really great distributors. I'm trying to think of how, I well, don't know, I feel I, like I we mean, just it, got really lucky for a lot of it. Yeah, a um, lot. Of, I, I think a lot of it is, well, not a lot. I think that a good point to make is kind of in in the conversations we had with Jason, he made these really good points of like, you know, because the, the conversation started with us literally just being afraid we were going to start losing yeah. um, our, you know, the sites that we had made relationships with, you know, like we, you know, we we produce all of the Pinot Gris from Temperance Hill Vineyard, which is a remarkably uh, incredible site that is farmed by dye, crisp, and, you know, and like, you know, we have a few sites like that where we're just, we're kind of, we feel the pressure of, you know, it could be grafted to something else. And, uh, and Jason kind of started a line of questioning that said, you know, like, well, what do you sell that, you know, Temperance Hill Pinot Gris for? Like, I don't, you know, like maybe like $22, $23 retail, which, you know, is, is not a inexpensive wine by any means. And, and he said something to the effect of like, well, maybe it should be 45, you know, or like, well, come on, you know, <laughs> and he's like, and he said, no, seriously, he said, you know, um, you know, something is worth what you tell people it's worth. And until, until you have that to say, until, you know, you do that, um, why, why are they going to pay more? You know, he said something like, you know, you have to grab people by the lapels and, and tell them this is, this is worth it. And, you know, he made the point that that's really how Oregon found itself where it is now with, with Chardonnay, you know, it, 
a lot of people didn't know what to do with Chardonnay here for a long they time. Ripped and it out. Yeah. It and was planted over. Yeah. And now going yeah. to the other side of the canoe, you know, yeah. running back and forth. Yeah, exactly. A lot of a lot of the Chardonnay that was planted here originally was grafted over in the nineties to Pinot yeah. Gris. Um so he, you know, said lean in and maybe uh you know, we, we started doing things, making partnerships with farmers to even slowly, like, um, increase the price we're paying for Pinot Gris to take away pressure from them in, in grafting it. And we're ratcheting the, the effective price of the wines. And yeah. hopefully there's and that's something not that's, a, a soon ceiling. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and I think that's really important to us in general is taking care of the farmers as well. So obviously we want to showcase Pinot Gris from specific sites and like show like the nuances that it can show. I mean, Pinot Noir is renowned for being able to show nuances in sight, right? And Pinot Gris is this super close relation to Pinot Noir. It's a slight gen genetic mutation, right? So why wouldn't you be able to do that with Pinot Gris? Um, and that's that's our view on it. But again, going back to the market of it and how you're able to charge $4,000 a ton for Pinot Noir and maybe 1800 for Pinot Gris, when the farmer's doing the same amount of work, why wouldn't they graft over? Yeah. Um, and we understand that completely. Um, and we like to form very close relationships with our farmers so that way we have long-term you know, access to fruit and they're getting you know, taken care of how they need to be taken care of. So we have been, we've been working with them like, hey, if you need to ratchet up price, let's do it. You know, Over the next three years, let's go from here to here. Mm -hmm. um, and that's fine. We, we will support that if you keep the fruit. You know, And, and we've had really good luck, I think, yeah. with people have been very open um, to doing that and I think it's been um, I think it's strengthened a lot of our relationships actually because we've sure. been the one coming to the table and be like we'll pay you more you didn't even ask we'll pay you more we get it we understand yeah. um, and so eventually you know our wines will be you know they'll go up in price a, a little bit but in terms of entering the market knowing that as well you know we did try to keep prices low um, yeah most we, of our wines so we sorry we we kind of have I think most of our wines end up in the twenty to twenty-five dollar. Yeah, twenty range. to twenty-five dollar range retail. Retail. Yeah. yeah. Unless you're in Pennsylvania, because then yeah. taxes are. There's a yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if any PLCB representatives will be watching this um, uh, footage, but uh, if you want to have a fun time just reading about uh, the absurdity of other state liquor laws, it's um, a good one to start with. Pennsylvania is. Um, it's mind-boggling, yeah. <laughs> um. Um, yeah, I mean, and then uh, we try to, I think, even though we want to make serious wines, we want people to take them seriously, and we want us, we take them seriously. Um, we, we, want the, we want it to be approachable and fun, too. So, the, you know, our, um, we have three really amazing um, label designers. All of them are women. Um, I like to point that one out. And... Uh, I think, you know, we just kind of, we wanted to go with something that was whimsical and not so, you know, I'm losing words. I feel like you're better no, with you're, this. Like, you're nailing it. <laughs> <laughs> nailing it. Um, yeah, no, I think it, there's, and, there's a, and it, it, it's kind of also uh, how and why we get along so well with Jim and Jenny. And, and it's something that I think Jim, None of us like yeah. fun, really, is what... <laughs> why we are <laughs> and it's you know it's and 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 Jim is always the most eloquent of all four of us and yeah. he said something the other day that was you know um, it's kind of like this like balancing act of uh, seriousness and and, and playfulness and, and playfulness and you know and having something um, 
that's yeah, both whimsical and um, and quite serious at the same time. Yeah. So you try to try to kind of walk that tightrope and yeah. Yeah. So you've talked about this a little bit, but I'm, in terms of sort of showcasing, you know, grief, I'm curious about your sort of winemaking philosophy and. And, and business philosophy, kind of how they're intertwined when it comes to showcasing Pinot Gris, when it comes to kind of balancing that playfulness with seriousness and, and finding your market. So tell me about sort of philosophies behind the brand and, and how they're, how they have manifested themselves so far as you've sort of built your brand. You, me? Wow. I guess Go for it. <laughs> I don't know if uh, I have an answer I, for that. I guess the philosophy <laughs> on like just at the first half of the question of the philosophy on on the making of the wine of sorts, um, and, and that kind of goes back to the the Pinot Gris um, dialogue. It, um, a lot of Pinot Gris, not a lot of Pinot Gris is is maybe not necessarily treated um, the same way as Pinot Noir in the cellar, um, so. With our single vineyard Pinot Gris, um, we uh, barrel ferment all of them in uh, mostly neutral oak and uh, French neutral oak, and we let them age on the lees in barrel for a year, at least a year. Yeah, um, you know where a, a good portion of the market of Pinot Gris is, you know, springtime release. You know, it's stainless steel Pinot Gris that you know gets bottled and released in February or March. You know. Which, you know, um, makes sense said, from yeah. a business standpoint Absolutely. if you're making a lot of red wine too, especially when you're getting into the wine world. If you're a new producer yeah. and you're making Pinot Noir, that Pinot Noir is not going to be released for two or three years at least, yeah. right? So Between what do you do? And bottle time yeah. And, so what do you do yeah. in the interim? So there, are, there's a lot of you know, cost consciousness, and you have to figure that out. And I, I, I feel like I see that that happens a lot with Pinot Gris. Is it's kind of this bridge for yeah. you know cash flow. Um, and not taken as seriously as Pinot Noir, which again, I mentioned earlier, it's so close genetically to Pinot Noir, why wouldn't you treat it as such? So that yeah. was um, always from the get-go, we wanted to treat our Pinot Gris like Pinot Noir. Um, if, and one day we will, um, we would like to start aging things longer than a year, um, but we ran into that same cash flow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Getting started. We're, we're starting to think about like taking like one wine a year and taking a year off from releasing it so that we can kind of in a cannon slowly move all of the wines onto like a an extra year yeah. you know whether that's between barrel and bottle so, I mean even back to how we approach the wine we don't like to tinker a lot with wine we don't aim to acidulate we don't aim to fine or filter um, which I think I wanted to make clear too, because I feel like a lot of times when I bring up that I like the science of wine and that immediately sometimes will invoke like, oh, you're, you're doing a lot of tinkering, right? And so my view of it from a scientific perspective is really understanding what's going on and not so much forcing it to do one thing or another. We just want to know how, you know, how to treat it to get a product that, that we're happy with and that we're proud of. Um, and so we don't do a lot, I mean, we try and we try and let it do its thing, right? We're just like parents, you know, here you yeah. go. You might have to learn by falling a few times off your tricycle, but yeah. um, you know, go for it. <laughs> yeah, so all of the wines are um, uh, ambiently fermented um, with native, native yeasts. Um, and 
Um, most of the whites are, are barrel fermented. We do, we do a lot of um, extended maceration with white wine specifically, so orange wine, if you will. We do make some, some skin contact whites and um, make a little bit of sparkling wine. And uh, we do make one red wine. One. <laughs> uh, it's, a, a, it's actually though, it does have 30, 30, 35% uh, white, white grapes, grapes co-fermented <laughs> into it, but uh, it's a, kind of like a Rhone-esque style wine. It's um, a Syrah blend from uh, Applegate Valley. Nice. Yeah. Um, and then I guess the, you had, the other part of the question was kind of like, how does that enter the market for us? Um, I think that <clears throat> maybe it's, again, back to being outsiders. Um, and and making wine for you know up until you know this year in a in a shared you know cellar uh we have not put a lot of eggs in the direct to consumer basket at all um you know we didn't have a tasting room i don't think either of us necessarily had any ambitions of opening a tasting room um we kind of wanted to you know, we already have other jobs too. So, uh, and you know, those are the, like having a, another hospitality space is that's a full-time job, you know? Uh, and if it's not a full-time job for you, it's a full-time job for an employee of yours. And, um, we, I don't think are at, a, a place where, um, we don't want to be the ones representing our wines at, at the moment, you know? Um, and, and frankly, yeah. I don't know if we ever, don't yeah, want to be exactly. in that situation. So, um, so the distribution model kind of has provided the ability for us to really focus on us being the ones making the wines and then supporting our distributors however we can. So, you know, we sell our wines. Um, and I, I mean, that goes back to marketing too. I think uh, something that you might lose with having, you know, I don't want to say that this is always the case, but if you're not the face of your product, right, we're not just selling, this is a bottle of wine, but this is all that we've put into it. And this is like us, yeah. like this is us in a bottle. And we really, you know, I think it's important that at least, for us. it's important for yeah. us to sell yeah. ourselves as well as, you know, the yeah. wine that we're producing and, and you'll lose that, you know, the further, yeah. the further away you get from it. So that's something that I don't think we ever want to for Please. sure, yeah. A lot of our wines, for the most part, um, so we're distributed in nine states um, and a lot, pretty big concentration on the East Coast, too. Um, and our wines, for the most part, land in, in you know, restaurants and uh, a little bit in specialty retailers where um, we're lucky in that our wines are given the opportunity to usually have like a store of sorts, you know, um, to you know, advocate for the wines and for us. Yeah. So we, we um, in our kind of business, um, we focus on those relationships. So, yep. you know, every year we, we travel a little bit and, you know, we visit New York and, and spend time with um, the people who are representing our wines in the market and visit the buyers who are, you know, buying the wines from our distributor and, uh, and we try to do that and kind of work the market, if you will. <laughs> Um, yeah. I'm curious about, you mentioned sort of us in a bottle, the idea that you're selling yourself, you're selling this work that you've done, this creation, the tangible creation like you talked about earlier that you've made. Does that make it easier or harder to deal with the kind of point of, the actual point of sale, the actual like rejection or, or acceptance of your wine? Is it, is it hard when someone says, eh, this isn't very good? Or is, is, it, or is it better when someone is, says, this is amazing? 
I mean, it's definitely better when someone says this is amazing. <laughs> I, I kind of like, no like the other way too. But also, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think, I, I've never gotten, you know, negative feedback that is really like struck, struck a huge chord with me. Cause I mean, there's plenty yeah. of wines I know that are out there that are phenomenal wines that I don't like, yeah. you know, it's just, it's a matter of taste. And so why wouldn't, you know, why would I get upset if Rick Bradley from Ohio no. doesn't, we, doesn't, uh, <laughs> doesn't like So, well, we, we did receive our first actual hate mail, hate mail. Like, yeah. like <laughs> we got it's a, gonna be framed a, in, a written letter <laughs> signed in postmarked from a guy in Ohio that told us, I think the end of the, long story short, the end of the letter was, if this is the best you could do for the love of God, please <laughs> stop. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe I don't want to piss <laughs> off too many Oregonians in this um, interview, but a part of me, maybe it's because we're East Coasters, like I, I really appreciate the directness because um, something that I definitely had to get used to in moving here is uh, how polite people are and yeah. at the expense of honesty, <laughs> you know? Um, it's, I, I'd almost rather somebody, I would, I would rather somebody tell me that they don't like a specific wine so that I could learn what they do and don't like rather than tasting all the wines and saying, yeah, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, okay. okay. So you said a lot about the last four. So, <laughs> um, yeah. 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 But, uh, I mean, no, I think that, that it's, um, it kind of goes back to like the idea of like publishing, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's a really cool experience, I think, to, to have something and to release it. And one, because, you know, once you just like, you know, like a, a writer or something, you know, um, once, once something's published, it's no longer yours. It's not, you know, it's, it's whoever holds it. It's also probably yeah. good to get negative feedback because then you know your product's out there and it's not just our mom saying, this it's is true. great. Yes. My friends yeah. loved it at Bunko <laughs> the other night. Yeah. Can you send us some more? So, yeah. you know. Yeah. I don't actually know what Bunko is, but my mom, my mom definitely plays, but I don't know. I hope it's not inappropriate. Not okay, good. I think it's like boggle. It's not strip poker. Okay, great. I don't know. I don't know who my mom's into. You know, she lives way far away from me, so <laughs> to each their own. <laughs> so tell me about the space here. Obviously, we're here at, at, at the old, what used to be Schaefer Vineyards. Uh, you've just moved in. You mentioned Jim and Jenny, yeah. friends of yours. So tell me about how this came about and, and sort of the decision to, to move here and, and what this does for you going forward. Sure. Um, to me so we finally, like I said earlier, you know, the way that we were increasing production, we finally got to a, a tonnage point where it, it started not to make sense to bring in more fruit based off of the rent we were paying. Um, because at that point, you know, there's just so much going into someone else's pocket when it could be going into a mortgage or a lease on our, our on our own building. So we finally made it to that point, and um, I think we started looking around. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we we made it to that point, and we started looking at land. And I mean, we weren't even necessarily just looking at wineries. Um, we were looking at buying a plot of land and looking at what it would be to just do some pre-engineered building. And um, and we had been looking for probably a year or so um, before Ross uh, saw. Uh, I don't, uh, was so it? We, we, um, so um, Michael Alberti from the Oregonian yeah. um, wrote an article about um, kind of uh, the, the state of, of this 
um, vineyard and winery, um, and that um, so uh, Harvey Schaefer passed away in 2010, 2011, um, and it was shortly thereafter sold um, to a father and son duo who moved up here from California um, to you know kind of do it all. And um, uh, long story short. Um, uh, they are. Um, they continue to live here on the land and are are focusing on uh, overseeing the farming and just kind of being up here. And they kind of moved away from the the wine production side of things. Um, again, so too many jobs. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a lot. Um, so um, they were looking for a tenant essentially, and um, so we saw that and and reached out and just kind of started a, a conversation and. Um, we saw the place and really fell in love and really knew we wanted it and, and worked hard to, you know, make it work. So we effectively, um, and then we immediately called Jim and Jenny and yeah. said, okay, are you guys ready to move too? Because yeah. we've found it. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> the four of us effectively, so we have, um, just a, you know, like a commercial real estate lease, a long-term lease on, um, the winery, which is the two buildings, um, the barrel room and the production building. And then uh, kind of, I guess, this, you know, uh, events grounds surrounding it. And, uh, and then kind of separate from that, we have an equally long um, contract for the fruit off of the site. So um, there's still a bit of Pinot Noir here that'll be, continue to be sold to some longstanding customers um, because we certainly don't want to stand in the way of, of, of long-lasting relationships. Um, but but uh, there's also some really really cool old plantings of uh, Pinot Gris, Riesling, Birchmeriner, Mueller Turgau, yeah. Chardonnay. Yeah. There's some cool stuff here. Yeah. yeah, it's really special. It is special. Um, but yeah, so it, what the, this, this space is originally, or um, was originally um, Schaefer Vineyard Cellars, which was um, planted in the early 70s. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's got a lot of history. So you, you guys and Jim and Jenny Hannah have like a fight for who gets which grapes? You just have like a, a, battle, like a battle royale? Yes, well, <laughs> there was a like a um, decathlon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. No, it, it actually it it, it pieced it, it pieced together pretty well. Um, you know, Jim and Jenny are working with a lot of the Pinot, which is great. Um, they they produce Pinot Noir and uh, and the white fruit. We we sort of kind of pretty pretty evenly split um, with maybe us. Uh, you know getting a little bit out ahead on the Pinot Gris front, you know, with Pinot Gris being yeah. our thing. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's worked out pretty, pretty well. So we'll all be making wines from this site and um, yeah. Which has affectionately been termed No Clo Radio. Yeah, mm -hmm. which is a fun thing in itself. Uh, so it kind of, <laughs> going so naming things is hard. Naming things is very hard. So, Hence, we put our last name on the bottle. Yeah, exactly. For our naming scheme. <laughs> when we sat down to name our winery, it was not we did not come up with very nope. flattering names. Nope. Um, no, but it, you know it was important to us to um, find something that wasn't necessarily indicative of this place just being a vineyard or just being a winery or being more attached to. Uh, B and I's wines than Jim and Jenny's. You know, this is this is our place. This is our home together, the four of us. And 
Uh, we want it to be kind of its own entity where both of our brands exist within. Um, and, you know, we, we threw so many names around and um, uh, we had kept coming back to the word clo, um, which is uh, an old French term for, uh, usually designates a, a like wall. a physically in walled vineyard, like stone walled vineyard. Um, which of course there this is does not have there are no walls here <laughs> so uh and it's kind of just like the uh, a whimsical nonsensical as jim again uh described uh answer to to that which is that um there are there are no walls here so no clo uh and it's a the radio aspect is so this is a long-standing um uh punchline joke um which is uh, called No Soap Radio. And uh, so it's kind of a, a portmanteau of, uh, of that. So it's play off of that and it's No Clo Radio. <laughs> but we are thinking about making one of us take, taking up becoming an, an amateur radio broadcaster. You know, yeah, get on the ham, ham radio. Um, so. That way we can like, you know, I don't know, broadcast like um, something from up here. <laughs> We're gonna have grape races. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> We'll have um, like a, we can have like a early morning talk shows over our coffee. Yeah. It's B and Jenny in the morning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it was like um, <laughs> uh, it makes me think it was like a Mitch Hedberg when when he's like, I did an interview for XM Radio, and they were like, you could swear on XM Radio, and he's like, yeah, no shit, no one could hear it. <laughs> You could swear in the woods too. <laughs> nice. nice. So, uh, with with the space here, um, what does this change about sort of your your immediate production, future production? What what uh, future plans? What does this change? What does this allow you to do that you couldn't before? I think. Um, well, we're oh, we're exponentially growing yeah. again, or at least that was the plan. Ooh, I mean, again. fruit set might be a little light this year. Um, we're we're starting to see, but um, it. Based off of historical yields of, of the fruit here, we were intending to go from working with 35 tons of fruit last year to like 70 plus this year. Um, which also, you know, again, by having our own building, we're not now limited in terms of every ton of fruit that comes in the door is more money going, you know, right. in someone else's pocket. Now we have this like flat, we know this is what we're paying for yeah. a year to be here. Mm -hmm we can bring in as much fruit as we want. And that's really gonna, I think, help yeah. economically um, keep our prices reasonable. Yeah. And So I think like to point that out um, or to, um, whatever, to further point out that most, most of the time when you're a, um, like a tenant at a shared space, mm -hmm. you know, um, your, your pay, your rent is based off of- How much fruit you bring fruit. in the door. Yeah, like it, based yeah. off of weight, so. And that, whereas this unlocks so many ideas for us because now we just, we have a flat. We yeah. fixed cost. Right. Um, so it's certainly helping us increase um, in production very quickly um, and with less impact than it yeah. would have had on our pocketbooks otherwise. Yeah. Um, and in terms of like economies of scale over the years, I mean, we did, if you want to do like the... Oh yeah, we did like... like <laughs> One ton. Well, you do, let's do like cases. <laughs> okay, oh. It's like, in 2015, we made 25 cases of wine. It was yeah. a barrel of wine. In 2016, we made 170, yeah, 175. Ish, ish, yeah. In 2017, 
17, we made 300, 400. Mm -hmm. 2018, we did 1,200. Yep. 2019, we're probably going to end up around 2,500 yeah. cases. <laughs> and yeah. uh, we were set to do over 4,000 cases this year. But um, uh, as B mentioned, uh, a lot of our sites are, are I, I think. I think everywhere in Oregon yeah, is. We're, it's going to be yeah. a pretty, pretty light, light year. Light year. Mm -hmm. So um, yields are down. And so we'll make a little bit of less wine, which might end up being nice anyway, just being in a brand new space to us and, you know, really getting to learn all the quirks yeah. and making sure we have all the kinks worked out. So, But with that said too, I mean, since this is essentially our estate vineyard at this point, you know, we do really want to showcase the no-clo radio line. I mean, between both Fossil and Fawn and us, you know, we yeah. do want to make sure that what we create is pretty special and yeah. we want to put it front and center. Yeah. Is it going to be used as a brand name? <laughs> well, well, actually, another thing, yeah. is this what you're going into? Another thing Jim and Jenny yeah. and us have decided to embark on together is a vermouth project. Um, and it will be called No-Clo Radio Vermouth. Yeah. <laughs> and it's actually all with made from, well, the first, the first iteration of it will have a little bit of okay. uh, distillate that came from another one of our sites that the four of us work uh, with. But Rest. after, we'll slowly move into um, having the vermouth be entirely from this estate. Yeah. But we're actually already into the third year of this still, project. Yeah. Um, so we've sent a little bit of the wine out, uh, or a little bit of wine from each of us over the past two years to our friends over at um, Stone Barns Brandyworks and, um, and had them distill into um, brandy for us. And uh, we're getting ready to actually use that to fortify wine this winter and, and aromatize it and, and make some blanc vermouth. We definitely hope it tastes like no soap radio. <laughs> it won't be soapy. <laughs> nice. Thanks. Um, but other, other than the, the vermouth project, I mean, we'll just be using the name Noco Radio vineyard, as like yeah. the vineyard designator to just call this place, you know, or if someday, you know, when uh, the pandemic isn't a thing, um, you know, maybe start to entertain people here in some aspect or another. Yeah, back in the 70s, Harvey used to have people come and they would just set out um, blankets and bring, you know, they could buy wine and bring food and he'd have jazz bands come and yeah. play. So bringing those back. We're really into that idea. Yeah. Jazz, so maybe jazz next and pizza year, nights, yeah. 2021. Yeah. All of our wine yeah. should be drank with pizza. So I don't know you if we've like, said like, that yet. You could like put like our, our, our mantra. You know, or you could put like our, um, our website, buy tickets now. Yeah. <laughs> 2021, reserve your seats. Yes, exactly. Maloofwines.com. Post-pandemic post fun. Yes. <laughs> I like that though. Why, all your wine should be had with pizza. Oh yeah, our mantra is eat pizza, suck glass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're big pizza nerds. Yes. Big. We're real big pizza big nerds. Big pizza nerds. <laughs> <laughs> really, we think every meal should be pizza. I think that's... Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you brought up, uh, obviously... Uh, pizza? Pizza, yes. Yes, go on. There is a goal to build an outdoor pizza, um, a, like a stone oven, pizza yeah. oven. Yeah. One day. Maybe 2021. Yeah. 
you talk about the future for the space, though, in terms of in terms of entertaining. In terms, so the idea down the road is to have this as a space, as a, taste, a tasting room space, gathering space, perhaps. Maybe, yeah. I, I think we'll always only be tasting by appointment only, because, yeah. um, like we said, we won't. Our intent is not to hire, you know, somebody to work the room, and, and we don't have the the ability to do that right now. Um, and that's what we've done for the past, you know five or six years yeah. is we will do tastings we just do them by appointment so we won't have set hours um, yeah. But yeah we would like to start doing things have like at least maybe once a month during the summers um, whether it's jazz and pizza night or you know we have a yeah. lot of friends in the industry who we would love to come and cook up here and just yeah. let people sit, sit around and hang out in the grounds and buy yeah. some wine and more like scattered events yeah. you know rather than just we're open you know from like 10 to 5. Ross also yeah. really loves planning weddings so if anyone needs a wedding planner. I've done a lot of weddings <laughs> over the years. You think I'm joking. <laughs> That's a fair random skill to have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the you know working in restaurants the whole the whole thing yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It'd be a lovely place to get married. For <laughs> <laughs> the low, low price of. <laughs> so tell me about, uh, obviously you're fairly new to Oregon, still fairly new to the, to the industry, but tell me about the sort of what your impressions have been, what your first impressions of Oregon were of uh, the industry and sort of what has changed, what, what your, how your impressions have changed as you've been a part of it the last five, six years. What does Oregon look like now, Oregon wine look like now compared to when you started? I don't know if I'm a good person to answer that because it was really my first forte into the production side of things. And I think it's hard to answer I mean, in general in, in that, um, especially us being bi-coastal for the first essentially yeah. three years of it. I mean, the time we spent here, our heads were down. You know, yeah. we were in one place for the most part. Having said that, you know, I think maybe first, first moving, you know, like intimidating to, to show up to a, like a, an industry that's very personality driven and you know and um it, it was maybe intimidating at first but it was very quickly dis you know disarming to actually i think meet you know who you know become our colleagues you know um other people making wine here very very early on people were so nice and yeah we're any almost anyone you meet making wine here will go out of their way to share information or, you know, um, loan you a piece of equipment because yeah. yours broke for a day, you know, and it's so, it's such a, a community that, that is really, um, special. Cool. I think something I find very interesting too, is just how young the wine industry really is here in Oregon. I mean, it, it there's a, you know, maybe yeah. a few generations of not even no, maybe two even generations of yeah. winemakers right hardly two, um yeah. hardly we're still in that second one um so you have like you i don't want to say you don't have all of this experience but unlike you know yeah, being in france do. or italy where it's way back and this is how we do things you know i feel like we're still in this like what works best here you know what grapes grow best here and yeah. obviously we're dealing with climate change and you know it just there's so much that I feel like everybody is still learning and you have these more experienced winemakers and you have these new bozos coming in from the east coast who are like great this is what we're going to do now oh, yes. and but everyone is just like Ross said everyone is so open to having conversations and expressing their views regardless of whether they're the same as yours like it's been it's been very enlightening just to be able to have conversations with people who aren't 
super close to the vest or who don't poo-poo you because you know you are new to the area yeah. or you don't have you know a family history of making wine and it's been I think that's been really just compelling to me with with totally. the industry here um yeah it really is just it's in terms of wine regions like Oregon's in its infancy yeah you know like we're talking yeah. about 40 years maybe there's not a lot of you know, ego of, yet yeah right? of of winemaking here and it, you know it, you could go back even less than that and and count the amount of wineries in the state you know on on your hands you know so a couple, so we've talked about the about the pandemic a couple of times today obviously we're talking to you in august 2020 we're still dealing with the effects of covid 19 uh kind of an uncertain present and future right now so i'm sort of curious about how it, that's affected your wine life so far um, and how maybe it's affected your view of the future for yourselves or for the industry in general yeah uh i will say we've been i don't know if we've just been lucky or i mean the consumption of wine i'm sure has gone way up because what what more fun is there when you're sitting around at your house? But um, I mean, we've had two releases this year so far, and I mean, we've sold out within the first couple of weeks. You know that, that that we sent stuff. So we've we've not really been hit. Now, with that said, you know we make a laughable amount of wine in general. You know, in the grand yeah. scheme of things. So we maybe that's why we're lucky. Um, I think maybe but, also where where wine land like. You know where are wines land price-wise, um, and the fact that we are heavily reliant on distributors in other states, where they can, you know, they're mostly turning and selling to well in this climate, um, you know, wine shops or you know retailers, whereas you know, because we're not we don't have a tasting room or are because we're not like necessarily so dependent on just selling wine directly to to consumers. Um, there's a little bit of a buffer for us um, with the with those two, you know, things. Um, with that said, and I, I don't know if I, I don't know too many people who we're personal friends with who have been super affected by it in a negative way. But my for wine specific? for wine oh, specifically, yeah. I'm just in, in terms of sales, but yeah. I, I think it's think well so maybe uh, um so m my day job if you will so i i uh work for a small um wine distributor here in in oregon um and like a lot of other wine distributors we essentially had to be light on our feet and just the the types of wines that are selling in this climate are different you know so and Again, I think our wines just kind of land in, in a sweet spot of price point that are still able to be sold right now. Um, so, you know, for instance, um, for us as for me as a distributor, like looking through the distributor lens, you know, at the time of the pandemic, I had a warehouse full of, you know, specialty wines ranging from like twenty five to forty dollars wholesale. You know what I mean? What we sell to, you know, wine shops for. Um, and those wines are still sitting there. You know what I mean? So we've had to adjust to have our inventory be mostly wines that are, you know, more like 15 to $20 wholesale that hit a, a retail shelf for 19 to $30. Mm -hmm. And those are the wines that are, we're able to continue to supply and then retailers are then able to continue to, you know, to sell. And that's not to say that people aren't buying other wines, but you know, 
not to the extent that they were, you know, before the pandemic, yeah. especially with, you know, restaurants being closed, you know, that's where a lot of specialty wine ends up and yeah. yeah so, but having wines that land in, you know, around 22 bucks, I think allows us to continue to move wine around. Yeah. It's kind of unfortunate that it does seem it's going to be a light yield year as well, because I feel like a lot of, um, workers in the industry, the restaurant industry, are now out of work. And I know there's been a flood of help in terms of harvest help. Um, I mean, we've been contacted way more this year than, than in previous years for people looking, you know, to come and help during harvest. And I think, I think a lot of people are finding that, you know, a lot of people, because wine's got to get made, you know, <laughs> the grapes are ready when the grapes are ready. So um, that's been interesting to, to yeah. see how that how that's affected that. So as you look ahead for, for yourselves, uh, what, what do you see uh, the next five, 10 years of, of, for your life, for your, for your brand and for kind of coming out of the pandemic with, with your brand? I haven't thought about that. Uh, <laughs> we're trying to get to the end of 2020. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Just thinking about what Pete's toppings you're gonna order tonight. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we we I think that maybe within that kind of realm of questioning, the the big thing that we have discussed is where is going to be the sweet spot of production level because, like B said, we don't want to find ourselves in a future where we either need to, um, you know, pay somebody else to make the wines because we're we have to sell it or, you know, or find ourselves in a place where we have to pay somebody to sell the wines because we can't handle the production, you know? Um, so kind of finding the sweet spot of being able to really be the two of us, you know, and not to say that we don't have help from others by any means, like, you know, um, but as far as full time, you know, like having it be able to be us and also still get to do the parts of it that we really love too, like, yeah. go and 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 visit markets and stuff so that'll be the 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 biggest question to answer is like where that production level lands and also of course that's assuming we can still sell wine as we grow so, um but i think that we both see that broad stroke somewhere in like the six seven thousand case range um, we'll see. Yeah, but who knows? Maybe it's 60. <laughs> uh, it's I'm not. <laughs> it's not 60. No. <laughs> I'm currently the person um, who labels all of our bottles. It's true. One at a time. Yes. So we will not be doing 60,000 cases of wine. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think that the, the really nice thing is that we know that we have this this home for our wines for a very long time uh, looking into the future and and that's really rad because now we can not have to worry about that part of it and and kind of focus even more again on the wines and and um, making sure we're doing our job and no no no. Yeah. but yeah no within the next i think five years we're we're hoping that at the very least one of us can have step away full time um yeah. And maybe Ross will kind of keep his roots in distribution. Yeah. So. Is there anything you're looking forward to trying now? Any new varietals or new styles or new anything like any new projects like that on the horizon? 
We the have uh, vermouth. Yeah. yeah, the vermouth is a big one. Mm -hmm. We, I mean, none of us have made vermouth before, so we've. It's been a really fun learning experience talking to as many people as we can about it because vermouth is actually funny because it's very close to the chest. People will not tell you their recipes. Mm. I mean, even not friends that of ours specifically for recipes. True, but they'll. <laughs> they, it, the it's process is IP, right? Like that is that you need an NDA if you want them to talk to you about. Yeah. Um, so it's been fun us all like reading about it and trying to figure out what herbs and spices we want to use. And um, that's been just kind of a cool learning experience. Yeah. Um, but we also have in terms of varietal, I would say we have some Aligote coming online in a couple years that we're super stoked about. Yeah, we partnered um, with uh, our um, one of the vineyard that we work with in the Shehalen Mountain Range, um, Diane Namarnik um, from Namarniki Vineyards, uh, uh, planted a block for us um, that's Aligote and a little bit of Chardonnay. And then we also planted a block of Riesling there, which we are our, our only single, as of now, our only single vineyard designation of Riesling is from her site, um, from an existing block, and uh, we're adding a second block so we, we can more. Make, make more. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, I think we're kind of, especially with moving into this space and, and making a few more wines from this site, we're, we're, we're pretty flushed out yeah. as far as, you know, like growing yeah. the lot, like the individual amount of wines. Yeah, we, we don't do, want to yeah. horizontally. I think we just want to start bulking yeah. up what we do make. Exactly. Already. And we, we're lucky, I think, in that we maybe we're doing this without even realizing it, in, but we do have uh, a number of wines that are blends and that are not necessarily exactly the same every year, but are just kind of like stylistically, like, you know, the, yeah, it's the, yeah, the spirit of that wine. So, you Ross know. walks around the barrels three times mm -hmm. every, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, every second Tuesday. <laughs> so, so yeah, so those are the wines that we can, as we grow, we can, grow those individual cuvées to just be higher production. Um, and they're also kind of like our more uh, entry-level pricing wines. And then uh, the single vineyard designations hopefully will just kind of maybe be more like rarities that people want to get their hands on. The coveted wines. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know you, you mentioned kind of not having a super a large awareness of the industry around you just because of kind of circumstances as you've gotten into it but i'm curious what you see as you look ahead for oregon wine if you see if there's something you see on the horizon or in the future for oregon wine in a good or bad way uh, as you as you look ahead for the industry i would say in something that's just concerning and we touched upon it is kind of again this what's popular at the moment right everything's being planted over to pinot noir and um you know chardonnay and it's an amazing location, the Willamette Valley, you know, for growing things like Riesling and Gewürztraminer that you, you know, I don't know of any Gewürztraminer coming out of California or anything, for example. I'm sure there is somewhere, mm -hmm. um, but just in terms of climate, you know, those grapes are, are so well suited for this and it would be such a shame if, you know, we continue to just edge those out. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I think, my concern. Um, I think the, the, I don't know the like the kind of hopeful answer to like that the you know 
to that notion is also that there are there are a lot of people that are doing really cool things yeah. and are are experiment yeah. or like the I don't think the sense of you know like pioneering or like you know or the sense of you know wonderment and and trying things out and taking risks I don't think that that's lost on the Oregon wine industry I mean I, you know I think that a lot of its early roots are are very much that spirit and yes you know a lot of eggs have been put into the uh pinot noir basket here but i you know i think that there are a lot of people that are excited for what else oregon can grow mm -hmm. for sure Absolutely. so if someone were to come to you and, and mention they were interested in getting into the oregon wine industry what would your words of wisdom to them be don't don't do it <laughs> nice. Right on. Like we're on the same. Love it. Uh, um, I don't know that we we could say that we had words of wisdom. I mean, like we could we could sit here and say everything that we said to you about our personal experience, but I certainly don't think that that's any like necessarily like recipe for for getting into wine production. And I think that like B said, like a lot of ours was happenstance and a lot of it was you know um well it was happenstance but it was also i mean we made the decision to take the plunge right i mean we totally. quit our jobs yeah. we came out here we were all in it wasn't um and not to say that you couldn't make it work if you just had one toe in the water and you sure. know the rest of your body out but if you want to do it the way that you're going to create these happenstances is just you know dive in head first totally. um that's what we did it was scary as all hell um, but it's but been so it. much fun and we've learned so you learn a lot quicker when you're, you know, trial by fire yeah. and just, and that's like maybe, dirty. yeah, that's like maybe even more of just like a extrapolation to just life you know, of just yeah, like, if you're not happy doing what you're doing, just rip Don't the, do rip the bandaid yeah. off and do something else. You know what I mean? Like that's, that, that's not specific to wine for sure. Yeah. 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 Certainly. What did your families think about your wine adventure? Oh, my dad's a big wino, so he was all for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I think everybody's very supportive. I mean, yeah. it's it's awesome though. It's like every you know, there's a. <laughs> I mean, parents are parents. You know, it's always like uh, um, I love every time we talk about wine. You know, getting like um. Uh, how to sell wine advice from family members. <laughs> yeah. Or or the yeah. have you tried this wine yet? My yeah. dad and his wife are wonderful. But they like yeah. what did they ask us the other um, day? Have you tried this blue wine? It's yeah. blue and we're blue. like Yeah, it's <laughs> Well yeah, it's kind of like a thing like, like well let's put blueberries. I'm like blueberries yeah. are purple. I That's not from blueberries. <laughs> I imagine it to be a lot like um uh like the I don't know, like being like a nurse or something where like somebody like you like introduce yourself and and you're like, you know, I'm a nurse and somebody's like, cool. Like, yeah, like I got this like thing going on, you know, like it's kind of like that. Like usually it's like in like a kind of close family or, you know, <laughs> relative situation where they find out about like the wine project and they're like, oh, like, you know, Uncle Jim makes blueberry wine, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's family. Family will be family. But yes, everybody is very trade them supportive. For the world. But yes, very yeah. supportive. They all have great ideas for us. Yes. <laughs> so when can we expect the blue wine? Mm. Ooh, yeah. Well, I heard Costco sells it, so anytime you want to swing by. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 
more question for the two of you. A little bit philosophical to end here. Uh, what is role? What is the role of wine in society? Ooh. I want to like be super lame and just say it like brings people together, but I feel like a lot of things do that. The role of wine in society. Or we could like really play to our audience of you know having like an archivist here and say that it it just truly captures this place and time yeah, in a bottle. It's a time capsule. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You should just put throw away the tapes. Just put a bottle of our wine in there. <laughs> just a picture of wine. Yeah. No, I um, think um, I think it's a conversation starter too. I mean, yeah. even even wines you don't like you know or, or it's interesting why don't you like them you know i mentioned earlier i there are a lot of wines i don't like that i know are good wines like there's nothing you know inherently wrong with them and i that's interesting and it then you go further you know like okay you decide you like rieslings okay well what about rieslings rieslings can be super pool toy and you know petrol they can be super sweet you know what sort of riesling do you like and then you can just it drives you into a further conversation of that process or whether it's the winemaker and where the wine comes from and how you have to make riesling and alsace versus how you know different people make it in oregon and it just i think it's such a cool way to connect people to a product that has this huge amount of just like action and, and theory and love and passion behind it that you don't necessarily think of right away and then as that just like spirals down yeah. I think it's I don't know I think it's a very compelling product to it makes the world small it does because yeah. you don't like you know I mean take any other crop like I mean are you like do you like like oh man have you have you had corn from Austria <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you <laughs> blue Austrian blue yeah. corn is uh, <laughs> you know or like yeah. it's like this like amazing thing that we've like found this crop is like you know transfers energy of like from a place like so well and you know part of it is us I'm sure too but like you know um what was the elevation of the kale that you ate in your salad last night you was know kale <laughs> was, yeah, was that dry farmed kale <laughs> you know like I mean granite or yeah like limestone yeah, yeah. Exactly, like what like what other yeah. what other crop do we like do any of that with like it's yeah it's and it's cool because it make it makes the world small you know and and it's relatable and um and then and then not only is it relatable on just you know how widespread it it's grown but also just in the way it's physically used on a day-to-day -day basis to like literally break bread and yeah. sit down and um have meals and yeah so yeah that's probably didn't answer the no, question at all that was a great answer, great answer. i'm gonna dry farm kale that's the answer <laughs> cage free free range kale yes. the only kale for us <laughs> Oh, you get like wagyu kale, like massaged kale. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> kale is only fed the finest kale, I guess. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're really spiraling at the end of this. Yeah. <laughs> that's, how, that's how I love to do it. Yeah. All the questions I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? Uh, well, my birthday is. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just like joking. going right no, down there. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. Um open microphone yeah, I mean just anything we didn't get to yeah okay. I don't know well thank you both so so much for the interview for your stories perspectives sharing thank this you. beautiful space with us this is awesome so well we're glad we were finally able yeah. to get a time on the books I know we uh yeah. 
string you along for a little you know. while. <laughs> <laughs> Figure you, you have no, I've, I've, I've stories I could tell you about that. No, <laughs> thank you both so much. This is awesome. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.